Trigger warning. This episode contains disturbing subject matter related to misogynistic murder, as well as references to the 2016 U.S. presidential race recorded before the disastrous results came in. Listener discretion is advised. In 1987, I briefly and most feverishly reignited my childhood love of both Superman and John Byrne through a combining of the two. Following his run on X-Men, Byrne had a tendency to work on characters and concepts I've been cool towards, while Man of Steel had never looked so dynamic and, frankly, Christopher Reeves-like. For the first time since my earliest awareness of superheroes, Superman was my favorite again, for about half a year or so. I'd been buying action comics for the art and the DC Comics Presents-style team-ups, but the actual guest stars rarely won me over. And anyway, the book completely changed format to a weekly anthology after my last issue, number 600. I had stayed away from Marv Wolfman and Jerry Ordway's Adventures of Superman, which soon left me with just the eponymous Superman title, and I dropped that with number 19. I really enjoyed the Silver Banshee appearance just a couple of issues earlier, but I was less receptive to guest art by Mike Mignola and some stories around action number 600, and then I couldn't get past the cover to number 19. It was inked by Ordway, and more resembled his work than Burns, and it featured an Otto Octavius lookalike controlling a robot that was flooring Superman. I just couldn't bring myself to buy the thing. As I had lost interest in the X titles around Fall of the Mutants, the Superman line had become my main buys, so it was like a puppy dog in a pet shop window waiting in vain for me to take it home and love it. But with nagging guilt, I turned away and scooped up something else that better struck my fancy again and again. I don't think my rejection of a single comic book has ever been so lingering or quasi-cruel. Another obstacle was that I moved back to Houston, which had, for as long as I can remember, firmly favored racking Marvel comics on the newsstand. And I don't think I saw another Superman comic until Byrne was gone. I believe he had a falling out with DC, then came back to Marvel and books I had at best a marginal interest in. I had a neighborhood comic shop for much of 1989 and gave She-Hulk a few issues to hook me. Between its higher price point and it's being mildly amusing instead of funny, I realized that that moment of synergy between talent and concept had passed. I think by the time Superman was having his long space adventure after killing the parallel universe Kryptonians, which was a tempting prospect to follow, but was already underway while I was collecting other titles. I dipped back into reading a random Superman comic here and there through 1992. Not only did nothing grab me, but I actually disliked those flavorless nibbles. It seemed like Superman had returned to the place where I had abandoned him in childhood, tired, meaningless, anticlimactic gimmick stories by middle-of-the-road creative and unambitious stewardship. In Adventure Superman number 466, cover dated May 1990, Dan Jurgens indulged in some Brit-style deconstruction of Fantastic Four analogs, wherein their alliteratively named science leader took the quartet on an ill-fated space voyage. Inadvertent exposure to radiation following unexpected solar flares caused three-quarters of the lot to seemingly, rapidly, horrifically perish, instead of becoming a dysfunctional family of superheroes. Not Johnny Storm flew to the sun. Not Ben Grimm committed suicide through MRI to end his terrific pain. Not Reed Richards melted away to a skeleton. But not Sue Storm was saved by Superman through a method of by her latish husband. Also, there's some crap about Clark Kent trying to have a date night with Lois Lane at her apartment. Then Perry White and his wife show up to pull Lane away for a story and give Clark seriously frosty shoulder over his moonlighting at New Times Magazine and a bunch of other unengaging soap opera. Also, Superman thought he might be at fault for those solar flares after throwing the Eradicator into the sun, but that was disproven, even though it'll come up later anyway. Forget I even mentioned the Eradicator. That's a whole other episode of this show. Sidestep to Superman number 77, almost three years later in March of 1993. Also, by Jurgens and part 8 of the Funeral for a Friend intro title arc, where everyone was reeling with the feeling don't stop continuing over the apparent face-beat death of the Man of Steel by way of Doomsday. Powered by hate, the fake Australian Lex Luthor Jr., who was really Donald Trump in a younger clone body with head and face overflowing with ginger locks, was distracted by visions of exposition covering his use of a kryptonite ring to keep Superman at bay, giving his arrogant human self cancer through prolonged exposure, leading at first to an amputation to his right hand, and then his fake death in a plane crash before transferring his consciousness 
Wrestler to the Clone and Young Grasshopper. Martial arts training is no time for a page full of exposition, Mr. Luthor. The short brown hair instructor with a surprisingly wide open kimono exposing approximately 40% of her unsupported breasts chided, You hired me to give you a top toy training session, Mr. Luthor. Keep daydreaming like that and you're just wasting your money. Nobody does that to me. Nobody. You have no bloody idea what trouble you are. But even though he wasn't angry enough to stop his Paul Hogan impersonation, seeing his protoplasmic shape-shifting parallel earth crazy fake sex doll Matrix Supergirl and regular old Lois Lane's show up in the doorway triggers Lex Luthor Jr.'s nice guy public face return. Hello, Lex. It's obvious you're not your father. If that overweight old power broker had ever been drop kicked like that, he'd have the kicker put on ice. Said head stomper Sasha concurred. Good thing you're not like that, huh, Mr. Luthor? Did a bunch of other not superhero stuff happen? Like Project Cadmus stealing Superman's body and Pocket having a heart attack and my personal favorite, three pages of three dudes deciding what Jimmy Olsen photograph would be used on the cover of the mock issue of News Time that was sold as a supplement to this story arc. Scintillating. Then it's not time at Lex Corp where Sasha is only just now dressing in the locker room. This time only wearing the pink bra that would have previously restricted her high kicking. Her partner wand in the three-member all-girl Andy Kaufman karate squad leaves for the bar intent on congratulating Sasha with the first round for how she handled Luthor Jr. If he wants to test himself against the best black belts in Metropolis, he has to learn to eat that. Kind of weird how he never seems to have men around though. By that point, Sasha was only talking to herself, at least intentionally. Then someone who doesn't belong in the women's room turned up off-panel. Lois and Matrix Supergirl and Kirby-esque sci-fi biker dudes raided Cadmus to liberate Superman's body and return it to a tomb inside a statue in the middle of Metropolis because that's a secure location. Lois leaves her engagement ring on Clark's finger and oddly left alone because of writing. Lex gloats in the solitude of the tomb. So I win. I own this town until you came along. That's the main reason I killed her, you know. That's Sasha Witch. I throttled the life from her throat with my bare hands just to prove that I was a king again. When they find her body tomorrow, all the evidence will point to a janitor Lex Corp, an ex-con no less. Of course, he'll deny the murder, but no one will believe him. And you can't do a blessed thing about it. You're dead. You're nothing. And I am back on top. This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. This is Less Than Live with Cater Die, a bi-weekly podcast about comics from all angles. I'm going to talk to you about what I'm reading and doing in the industry, as well as interviewing some of my friends and favorite creators. So come along with me on this journey into geek culture. Well, that's our show. If you feel like it, why not rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher? We've been upgrading and fancifying our studio, um, by which I mean my bedroom, but whatever. And we have plans on plans for future episodes. We have a real mic now. It's so exciting. If you've got questions or want more, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at LTLcast, and you can get show notes after the fact at lessthanlifecast.tumblr.com, which, yes, I am actually updating now. Are you wearing sunscreen? Are you friggin' sunscreen? I'll miss you. Where were we before that lengthy digression where anyone who kind of liked Lex Luthor because he's a more interesting and nuanced character than post-crisis Superman was faced with a scorched earth, misogyny-based rebuttal from people who want to force you to prefer Superman? Which I'm sure doesn't contribute to those books never being top sellers outside of gross publicity stunts with rapidly diminishing returns. Oh yeah, not Reed Richards and the reign of the Superman. See that science dude who I'll now positively identify as the disembodied Hank Henshaw somehow survived losing his flesh body through the ability to possess and control machinery forming for himself a robot body. Through some tortured supervillain logic, Hinshaw blamed Superman for his tragedies and set about revenging himself upon the less literal Man of Steel. Too bad Doomsday beat him to the very much literal punch, because... Yeah, 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 
Because his backstory and motivations weren't yet quite so thin as to be entirely transparent, Hinkshaw turned himself into a T-800 Terminator hunter-killer unit life-size action figure battle damage variant Superman Tribute Edition. Or unless my mouthful, he became a cyborg via an incomplete clone of Kal-El and a cybernetic chassis. Despite his satanic red chrome finish and the fact that he looked like he'd tried to make a skin suit out of Kal-El's corpse, but ran out of time before his entry in Project Runway Buffalo Bill Edition was due, prominent figures were falling all over themselves endorsing the Cyborg Superman as the real steel deal. If you haven't figured out by the end of his debut issue that the Cyborg Superman was the rainy Superman most likely to turn out to be a mass murderer, I don't know why you're listening to this instead of defending the Dexter series finale on MySpace. And aside, William Jefferson Clinton supported the Cyborg Superman in 1992, and a wave of Republicans swept into power during the 1994 midterms. When given the choice between Fred Thompson offering a contract with America, or the first-term president whose super buddy turned out to be in cahoots with Mongol in trying to turn Earth into a new war world, suddenly Newt Gingrich sounded comparatively attractive. This comic maybe used the subject, Newt Gingrich, and the adjective attractive in the same statement. Ray, you'll have mercy on our souls. Myriad debuted in a story of the same name by Dan Jurgens and a young David Latham. Sasha's body ended up unnoticed in a landfill, while Inspector Henderson and his unwanted partner, the cyborg Superman, investigated a series of mass graves full of fresh bodies with puncture wounds in their spinal cords at the neck. Meanwhile, Gamir and Venev turned up at the landfill, with Gamir killing a security guard before sending Sasha's corpse, and diving through the trash to suckle her too. I guess if Gamir represents greed, that sort of makes sense, but Gamir was usually portrayed as a haughty aristocrat type. Admittedly, that should have been Praetor's characterization, but the black guy didn't seem to get as much play in these annuals as the rest. Hmm. We could have moved right past this if they just used Glonth, because his gluttony better suits the dumpster diving and his general vibe. Whatever, poor Venev just looked on the whole time, because this will not be a good book for any of the lady-type characters. So here's where Sasha's body is reanimated, but far more distressing, this is also where the script shifts to all florid second-person captions. You're alive. You don't know who you are or why you're here. You don't know what you are. You only know that you are a fetid mess, covered in the wretched leavings of man's modern world, and you want out. So you turn, looking for warmth and shelter, not knowing where to go. You're a new creature, a baby fresh from the womb, taking your first steps into the world. You wish you were dead. You step into a pile of sand, which collapses under your weight until you drown in its countless damp but gritty multitudes. You chose poorly. Start your adventure again from page one and try again. Mercifully, cut to LexCorp, where Inspector Henderson has come asking about Sasha Green, whose father happens to be a janitor working there, who also happens to be present during this exchange that soon involves Lex Luthor Jr. We also learn Sasha's been missing for weeks, which means she's exceptionally well-preserved, or Gamir is super-duper extra-heavy gross for putting his alien mouth on her decomposing corpse. Despite silently reminiscing about the exact details of his murder of Sasha, Lex vows to devote whatever resources were necessary to find the dear daughter. Miria snuck into a gym, showered, then stole the street clothes of an older gym member present in the locker room. However, stole is both more and less a correct term than you'd expect in this instance. You see, Miria inadvertently assumed all the woman's memories, personality, and abilities, knocking her victim out temporarily. In that sense, Myriad put on her own clothes because she thought she was Muriel Rabinovich. Other gym members didn't see things the same way and tried to stop Myriad from stealing Muriel's car and escaping. Inspector Henderson and Lex Luthor Jr. worked together to investigate the murder spree while inadvertently doing their best to keep Cyborg Superman from joining them when he pulls stuff like trying to hack Lex Corp's computers. Cyborg Superman makes the most progress, though, by using his internal analytics on blood found at a crime scene that allows him to conclude the involvement of aliens. Myriad finds her way into a gunfight between a gang and police, inadvertently becoming one of the bangers just as he takes a bullet. Because being a low-rent version of Rogue for the X-Men wasn't bad enough, the caption even states, contact. Just like what would happen when the Titan Jericho used to possess the bodies of people. Myriad then continues in place of the hood in his conflict. Back at LexCorp, Luthor is confronted by Cyborg Superman about Sasha Green's murder, and starts fingering a contingency switch before learning Cyborg is only asking if Lex had also come to the conclusion that she and the other dead were the victims of extraterrestrials. Lex happily teams up with Cyborg Superman just as 
his myriad moves attract media attention. Inspector Henderson reaches her first, but fearing exposure, Lex tries to kill them both with LexCorp defenses. The cyborg Superman saves them, and after a hasty explanation of his happy trigger finger, realizes Sasha Green is presently an amnesiac. LexCorp studies Myriad and learns she has a metagene. Still concerned Sasha may recover her memories, Lex sabotages his own building in disaster, used to distract Cyborg Superman and Henderson while he has Sasha transported off-site via helicopter piloted by a hitwoman disguised as a doctor. Myriad soon recognizes you in danger, girl, and intentionally evokes her powers. Rather than pass out, the assassin, Jillian Simmons, comes under the mental control of Myriad and is ordered to shoot herself in the head. Myriad then uses the assassin's piloting skills to fake her own death in a crash. Back at LexCorp, Luthor claimed Sasha Green had fled the building amid the hubbub and perished in the helicopter. The cyborg Superman found Simmons's body, supposedly burnt beyond recognition despite his having sampled her blood and discovered the ET element in this very story, so Hank Henshaw just lacked follow-through. Along the same lines, Myriad walked away from her second attempted murder and never troubled Luthor again. The end. David Latham was never really geared for superheroes, but he can draw some serious noir and horror, which makes this story one of the more visually effective of the Bloodlines annuals. It's not flashy, so it didn't wow me when I was basking in the Chromium Age, but today I appreciate the clarity and storytelling and consistent tone of dread. The story is also extremely violent, like actually seeing the bone and muscle in the empty cavity at the neck of the victims, or when the security guard's arm is ripped off by a gamir in a wet spray of jaggedly rent meat. It's too bad Dan Jurgens' script is episodic, it's absolutely spinning its wheels, it's just trying to fill the space with something you would have found in a TV procedural of the day. And that's before we get into all the misogyny! This book's cover is by Christian Alami, and is among my favorite of the event. The contrast between the cyborg Superman's human robot sides is disturbing, flanked by headshots of Gamir and Venev amidst crimson clouds, with a monochromatic red myriad rising up from a pile of debris. The overall design is potent, and the rendering style lush with rich inks. Superman Annual 5 arrived between the first and second solo stories of the cyborg Superman, so they were still playing very coy about his true moral alignment and secret identity, with the so-called last son of Krypton, Ni, the Eradicator, being the primary red herring teased as a heel and criticized within the comics themselves. As a result, there's very little internal monologue offered for the cyborg Superman, and it's entirely goal-oriented exposition. It's an odd parallel that both the annual's titular star and its new blood introduction are presented as blank slates, while each actually has an involved history carrying over from previous Superman stories. For instance, Myriad was the only original new blood who was not a newly created character for the annual, and Superman readers would be led to believe that she predated the cyborg Superman until the Hank Henshaw reveal. Myriad, who I'll remind you wasn't even given a last name until after she'd been murdered in a different comic book, made a very brief cameo in the Bloodbath miniseries on her way to never appearing again. This troubled soul is Tommy Monahan, aka the Hitman. The parasites poisoned his eyes, so now he can see through anything. They poisoned his brain, so now he can't stop reading people's thoughts. All their thoughts, especially the ugly ones. Tough break for an ambitious young Hitman. Tommy's being positioned here as a typical 90s renegade anti-hero with a billion guns strapped to him riding around on a motorcycle. And that's when he runs into Myriad, who's wearing a variation on the costume that she appears in on her trading card from the Bloodlines set. Instead of being all green, though, it's more of like a purpley, wine-colored outfit. And she identifies herself as Jillian Simmons and asks if he wants company. So apparently, and this goes in line with what they said on her trading card, she still thinks that she's Jillian Simmons, and apparently still has the same skill set. For a moment, this question confuses the hell out of Tommy. He knows he likes her, but he can't figure out why. Then he tumbles to it. He likes her because he can't read her mind. Plus, she knows how to handle a heckler and Koch VP220 like a pro. And she used the same magnesium crystal timer in her plastique that he does. It's a 
lot of plastique, a suicidal amount. He tenses for what he feels will be the last sound he ever hears. The pair had ridden in against the giant ultimate bloodlines parasite creature and tried to blow it up with the explosives. There's a big explosion, but it doesn't go quite as they thought, and they just confused for the second time that day. Nothing. When the bomb went off, and what a bomb it was, she didn't flinch. She didn't react at all. And suddenly, with a chill, Tommy Monahan realizes that his passenger is dead. And then he realizes that she isn't. And then he realizes that she is. And then he gives thanks that he can't read her mind. And he thought he had problems. Tommy basically hops up on his motorcycle after a crash and rides away from Myriad, who simply, blankly, zombie-like says, I'm fine. It's just funny because they give this fairly long spotlight moment to Hitman and Myriad, and one of these two doesn't really do anything with that. The missing person, Sasha Green, on the other hand, was one of the smoking guns leveled at Lex Luthor Jr. as part of the fall of Metropolis, intratitle crossover begun in Action Comics number 700, covered in June of 1994. Dr. Gretchen Kelly, one of Luthor's most trusted aides in his clone resurrection and the one he chose to pretend to be his birth mother, finally took the long-distance phone call from her conscience and played deep throat to Lois Lane's Woodward and Bernstein. Actually, more like Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange. Since everybody knew who the lady whistleblower was and she ended up going to jail, Kelly was a latent feminist who seemed to have a particular problem with how Lex was using and abusing the Matrix Supergirl replicant, whatchamacallit, plus she had video of Sasha Green's murder turned attempted murder. Also, Lex's clone body was prematurely aging and about a year later he had to be saved by lighting a magic candle that allowed him to sell his soul to a devil. Repeat, a devil. Lots of devils at DC Comics. Some of them not even in the Superman editorial office. Also, Lex's more trustworthy and therefore more sociopathic aide, Happerson, set off one of Lex's fail-safes that basically blew up Metropolis like a mega earthquake. That way, Lex couldn't be blamed for all those deaths and Green being undead meant he wasn't a murderer somehow. Also, Zatanna magic Metropolis back together again. I think a while after the crummy sales numbers on the story arc came in and everybody had already stopped referring to the destruction of the comics. I guess some bells can be unrung. Speaking of unrung, zombie murder victim Sasha Green was mentioned one more time in an issue of Superman the Man of Tomorrow, a book that only existed to plug holes in the schedule for five-week months so that there were 52 weekly issues of a triangle number Superman comic every year. Unofficially, it was also the comic book equivalent of a newspaper Sunday strip, mostly just recapping the stuff that happened since the last Man of Tomorrow came out. Sasha Green was an, oh yeah, that happened, and it was never spoken of again. Not unlike that woman Mike Tyson went to prison for raping before he started appearing on How I Met Your Mother and his own cartoon on Adult Swim. Murdering an innocent but largely anonymous woman named Sasha was punctuation at the end of the funeral for a friend arc to maximize the amount of Superman's absence by death. Maybe someone told Jan Jurgens or Mike Carlin how disgusting that was, so they tried to fix it by giving her superpowers, or maybe she was just a shortcut around doing the work of inventing an all-new disposable Bloodlines character. Either way, Myriad was a reminder that Lex Luthor was an unpunished, woman-hating killer, that Superman was so impotent in affecting accountability against as to metaphorically be a Kryptonian cuckold watching Lex add handcuffs and a ball gag to Lady Justice's blindfold. Myriad meant nothing to her creators and editorial shepherds but a cheap, sordid notch in Lex Luthor's bedpost of villainy, who passed along a get-out-of-jail-free card to him bound up in a viral load of her alien parasite-acquired metahuman second coming. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? 
to all of us. I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. Or soon the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You Earthlings can't change the way I can. Got me dying to those powerful cousins on Earth. I've been expecting you, for I am the Thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more and the Phantom Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatots, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. You're just a muscular freak, blind or hulk. Stop! You must not end on the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain him to the drain of all elemental life. So speak, Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witness the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. FFcast.libsyn.com Com. I can go into even more detail about Cyborg's backstory and how he hooked up with Mongol, but it's too stupid and contrived for us to waste each other's time on. I will mention that it involved a totally awesome, forgivable Thanos clone who had appeared in several of the best Superman stories of all time before being ruined by the post-crisis Superman creative teams, literally kneeling to kiss the hand of Dan Jurgens' crappy Mr. Fantastic riff. That alone was enough to make me want to jump off the triangle number train. The for-real Superman teamed up with the three non-terroristic reigning Supermen, hallelujah, and I think the Matrix Supergirl to defeat the Cyborg Superman while Green Lantern and Hal Jordan took out Mongol with one arm tied up in a sling. Henshaw continued to pop up here and there, usually called the Cyborg, which betrayed a real lack of foresight in what to do with this dude going forward. Chalk it up to white privilege that nobody considered Victor Stone in the matter. One of DC's already too few African-American superheroes lost his mind and identity, briefly taking the unfortunate name Siberion, while being rendered as a blob of black ink with red circuitry lines running through it, a ripoff of Marvel's techno-organic New Mutant Warlock, without anything that made that already trying character remotely interesting. Also not particularly compelling was the cyborg Superman growing his hair out and running around in an imagination impoverished red and black suit. He was a party to major events in the Superman titles involving the resurrection of Doomsday, the temporary conquest of Apocalypse, the crossover with Marvel Silver Surfer and more, but no one outside the faithful gave a damn after Reign of Superman. Aside from his slumming in as a minor member of the Sinestro Corps before the Green Lantern franchise flamed out, the same creative teams that couldn't sell Superman comics without stooping to killing the guy in a grand stunt and made DC so much money in doing so that they were granted the industry equivalent of tenure for the rest of the decade. They did an outstanding job of playing to the same aging white bread crowd in their safe little pocket as the industry went through many exciting and perilous upheavals. Meanwhile, the Man of Tomorrow became so detached from the day that no one in any medium seems to know what to do with him anymore. Superman is typically rendered as a neutered relic or an existential threat by its clueless owners, a far cry from the former international paragon of truth, justice, and the American way. The cyborg Superman is probably their most visible concession to the Chromium Age, seeing as he even appeared on DC's first and by my recollection only Chromium cover. Like most of the Image Comics lineup, he was blatantly derivative, undercooked, extended undue credit by both pandering editorial and a readership of rubes, but most importantly, violent and 90s extreme, without actually having much impact in the long run. Despite copious appearances and numerous chances to make good at badness, the Cyborg's contemporaries are not Lex Luthor or Brainiac, but instead Ravage 2099 and Bloodshot. He might not have been one of the horsemen of the comic industry apocalypse, but at least one of their squires. To me, the Cyborg Superman is a primary reference point for the poisoning of the Man of Steel to a generation, which is certainly a form of 
villainy, but not the sort I take any pleasure in. One last thing. You people who thought that Bernie Sanders was an unrealistic candidate and decided you wanted a more practical choice to go up against Donald Trump, you just remember that Hillary's going to have a lot of questions to answer about her email server, Benghazi, and what she knew about Coast City when. Don't talk to me about Green Lantern Rebirth. Coast City is still a legitimate issue and the American people demand answers. But all kidding aside, there's obviously a double standard at play here. Because I'm not at all confident Donald Trump hasn't murdered some poor woman at some point just to prove that his tiny non-orangutan fingers could wrap all the way around her throat until she bled from wherever. Hugh loves horror movies. I like them cheesy. I like them gritty. I like them campy. I love them all. He married Christine. She hates them. I think they're senseless and upsetting. Listen in as Hugh searches through shelves of DVDs, VHS, and Blu-ray. There are too many of these movies on the shelves. We need to just start getting rid of them. In his never-ending quest to convert his lovely wife to the dark side. <laughs> Come to the dark side. In Christy Christie's Just to offer a little peek behind the curtain, most episodes of EC Bloodlines are comprised of me doing audio adaptations of material I wrote for blogs and the like over the years, plus supplemental material I've either recently written or just make up on the fly. This episode is one of the rare instances where I actually scripted like 95% of what you hear. I had a lot that I wanted to say about Myriad and the Cyborg Superman. And I felt better about getting it all down on, well, not paper. I mean, it's 2016, for God's sake. And so I'd written this episode months ago, like in the early spring, I think, before the end of the uh, previous season of the podcast. And so by the time it came to record that material, Bernie Sanders was no longer in the race. So I had to kind of tweak some of those jokes. And then I recorded this episode probably six weeks or so back, maybe a little bit longer. And of course, like everyone else, I couldn't have predicted the results of the U.S. presidential election. Suddenly this episode took on a metatextual quality that had not been intended and some of the more cutting jokes directed at presumed president-elect hillary clinton may sting a little bit more than they were intended now but i just didn't know how bad 2016 was going to be it's so bad you can't even look forward to the end of 2016 because you know what's going to happen in january of 2017 anyway moving on if you enjoyed the undercurrent music in this episode you should please pay to legally download the songs superman by love spit love pale green by veruca salt burnout by green day murder by alana davis and silver gun superman by Stone Temple Pilots. Direct currents were projected across social media by the 108th Sage, Adam Blackmoon, Ali Bats, Dr. Ange, Between the Pages, Cash Flag, Chris Sheehan, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Comics Couplets, Comics in the Golden Age, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Doug Zawisha, Ed Moore and Ed Moore Jr., Eric Mannix, Firestorm Fan, Flanger of the Crypt, FKA Jason, Joseph Joe Crawford, Keith G. Baker, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun Podcast, Knowing Flame Comics, Kurt Fleischer, Longbox Crusade, Mark Sweeney, Matches Balone, Michael Dabb, Nethead, Perturbed Renderings, Radio vs. the Martians, Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast, Richard Field, Ryan Daly, Silver and Gold Podcast, Son of Cthulhu, Stella at Batgirl Oracle, Style Icon, Cinedalia Scarecrow, Trekker Talk, Unearthly Visions, Waiting for Doom Podcast, Warlord Worlds, and Xenozoic Xenophiles Podcast. Warlord Worlds Podcast tweeted, starting the day with the DC Bloodlines Podcast from Diablo Frank as he talks about Vixen from Rolled Spine Podcasts. Clayton Robinson added, Vixen, Star of 
TV, animated web series, and Justice League Detroit. Long box crusade offered. Just finished listening. Another great episode. Michael Dab concurred. Great episode. Tom Panarese wrote, Is she cosplaying as Panther? To which Ed Moore Jr. added a butum ching. And Cal Benning offered, In Soviet Russia, Vixen Podcast listened to you. This program is a not-for-profit fan production. Any copyrighted materials featured within are believed covered under fair use, with no infringement intended against copyright holders. You may leave your comments on the DC Bloodlines blog, the Rolled Spine podcast WordPress page, their devoted Twitter account, or the account of your host, Diablo Frank, at Commander Blanks. You might also use the Facebook page if a legal machine remembers to update when the Bloodlines podcast is delivered. And of course, always remember, SPILL THE BLOOD!